0: From Public Radio International, this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, May 7th. I'm Marco Werman. European voters turn their backs on austerity. In France, they elected a socialist who favors growth through spending. And in Greece, no one knows what's next. This is a totally new reality. I mean, All hell has broken loose. Even the winners have been shocked by the an election. And later, Senator Richard Luger's tough re-election campaign. I personally voted
1: for him for five times, but I will not a sixth time.
0: A GOP foreign policy leader fights for his political life ahead on the world.
2: The R.I.'s The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com.
0: Hi, Marco Werman. This is The World. For several years now, European leaders have sought to solve the current economic crisis there through austerity. Their mantra has been, reduce spending to reduce debt. But European voters said over the weekend, enough already with the austerity. In Greece, election results risk unraveling Europe's austerity-based bailout of the country. We'll hear more on that in a few minutes. First, we turn to France, where new President François Hollande is getting ready to take power now. He wants to spend more to stimulate growth, and a
3: majority of French voters agreed with him. The world's Jerry Haddon has more. The headline today in the left-leaning French newspaper, Liberation, is just a single word, normal. That's a reference to President-elect Hollande's modest, every-guy style. It could also be interpreted as a wish, a wish to return to normalcy, to the way things used to be in France, before the crisis. In his victory speech last night, Hollande tried to reassure French voters.
4: Ce soir, this evening, there are not two Frances that are facing il each other. There's France. only
3: one France, only one nation dans le même des gathered des with the same destiny. But France is not alone, and to get out of the economic crisis, it must act in concert with its 26 co-members in the European Union. Riding a wave of public indignation over spending cuts, Hollande has vowed to make growth his priority, not austerity. Last night, he alluded to his pledge to spend more public funds on, among other things, hiring tens of thousands more school teachers.
5: Priority
3: for education, the school of the republic, will be at the heart of my involvement. Hollande's supporters, the majority of Frenchmen, hail his vision. But while lame-duck President Nicolas Sarkozy was congratulating Hollande, his conservative UMP party, likely to be in opposition in Parliament, is already on the attack. Secretary-General Jean-François Copé is out front.
4: Je l'ai qu'il en
3: la des Hollande has been promising to lower the retirement age, to take on more public sector workers. Maybe this is what's necessary, he told French radio sarcastically, but I think it's a grand illusion. Hollande plans to take his spend-more, grow-more message on the road. First stop, Berlin.
4: That is to give the European construction a dimension of growth, employment,
6: prosperity,
4: of future.
0: And this is what I will tell as soon as possible to our European partners, and first and foremost to Germany, in the name of the friendship that binds us, in the name of our common responsibilities as well.
3: None of this is music to German Chancellor Angela Merkel's ears. Her conception of responsibility is, first and foremost, belt-tightening. Today she dug in her heels once again. She said the fiscal pact, which caps national deficits at 3%, is not up for renegotiation.
2: 25
3: EU countries have signed it, she said. I consider it to be adequate. It's also a matter of principle in Europe that following elections, we do not renegotiate what's already been agreed upon. Otherwise, she said, we could not work together in Europe. But France has Europe's second largest economy and thus strong negotiating power with Germany and others. Yet what it can't control are the markets. And so far, each time a country has tried to push back against austerity over the past few years, the markets have punished them.
4: Este año, el de del estructural...
3: This is Spanish Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy at the EU in Brussels in March, telling his neighbors that Spain's deficit would be a bit higher next year than what the EU prescribed. His defiance played well at home, but it sent Spain's borrowing costs rising again, over 6% for some bonds. But there are some signs that international lenders are beginning to heed voters who've now toppled several pro-austerity governments in Europe. The International Monetary Fund now says it may accept some flexibility on Spain's deficit, and it's accepted a pay hike for civil servants in Romania. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon.
0: Now to the elections in Greece. Voters there were clearly fed up after five years of recession and two years of harsh austerity measures, so they dealt a huge blow to the country's two main political parties. The big winners were those parties looking to roll back or amend the austerity deals that Greece has struck with Europe and the IMF. The world's Clark Boyd reports.
7: For the past three decades, a center-right and a center-left party have essentially handed power back and forth in Greece. In fact, it was a coalition of those two parties that worked together recently to ensure the country met its austerity targets to secure promises of more EU bailout money. But this time, Greek voters, it seems, had enough of austerity. And the parties, both far-left and far-right, that promised no more of it, got the vote. The result is a tumultuous new political landscape. This is a totally new reality. I mean, all hell has broken loose. Even the winners have been shocked by the election. Stefanos Kasimatis is a columnist for the Kathamarini newspaper. It's a contradiction. Seventy percent of of the people in this country want to stay in Europe, in the European Union. At the same time, the same people, the same percentage, do not want to bear the consequences of of that choice. In other words, the Greeks want to be in the Eurozone, but they don't want to pay the bill. And the far-left and far-right candidates capitalized on this, especially the left-wing coalition called Syriza. It finished second with more than 16% of the vote. The party's leader, Alexis Tsipras, said the message was clear.
8: (inaudible) Europeans
7: cannot compromise with the barbaric bailouts. They cannot legitimize an undignified future, Tsipras said. He said that German Chancellor Angela Merkel needs to understand that the policy of austerity has suffered a huge defeat. Tsipras vowed that his party will do whatever is necessary to have a government that will condemn the bailout agreement and cancel austerity measures. Merkel today voiced her own opinion on that line of thinking. The voting result is not uncomplicated, said Merkel. She emphasized that what's important is that the economic and fiscal measures that Greece has already agreed to be continued. There's no alternative, she said, adding that now is the time for Greece to figure out how to form a coalition government. But that's not going to be easy, given that the pro-austerity parties are now so unpopular and the anti-austerity parties run the gamut from communist to far-right nationalist. Some are skeptical that anyone will be able to form a coalition, at least a stable one that can actually govern or pay off debts. And as time slips away, the markets will mete out their own punishment, says Pippa Malmgren, a former senior economic advisor to President George W. Bush.
9: Time is money. The more time the politicians take to deal with this problem or to make the payments, the more costly it will be because the markets will make it more expensive and interest rates will go up.
7: Under Greece's current bailout plan, the country is supposed to find more than $12 billion in further cuts by next month in order to qualify for more bailout money. The clock is definitely ticking. Today, New Democracy, the party that garnered the most votes in Sunday's elections, made an initial stab at trying to form a coalition. This evening, its leader said he had given up after less than a day. For The World, this is Clark Boyd.
0: We're going to take a step back now to consider what these votes in Greece and France might mean for the global economy. Jacob Kierkegaard is a research fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. So, Jacob, this morning on CNBC, billionaire Warren Buffett said Europe's going to have a hard time resolving its fiscal problems because of these election results. Do you agree with that?
10: Uh, uh, Yes and no. I mean, I think we shouldn't – it's it's hard to underestimate the challenge that's facing Europe, which is much more than fiscal. It really has to do with the design, a redesign of the entire euro area. But I, on the other hand, don't think that these elections, at least not the one in France, is going to prove uh, a particularly complicating uh, event. Uh, The issue in, in Greece is somewhat more complex and there might be some downside there. But by and large, I think we shouldn't always sort of dramatize the effects of these elections.
0: So what do you think as an economist then? Is it possible, say, in France for uh, Francois Hollande to restore the social services that uh, Sarkozy dismantled uh, and uh, have growth to occur at the same time?
10: Uh, I think, in short, that François Hollande is going to be forced by the sort of uh, general political and economic circumstances in Europe to disappoint a lot of his voters, because I do not believe that he'll be able to usher in a new era of uh, growth and anti-austerity in Europe. And with respect to France's own economic challenges, I don't think that he will be able to uh, restore The public services that Nicolas Sarkozy uh, reduced in his term in office because the challenges, the fiscal challenges that France itself faces are simply too great. So the reality is that most of the policies he's going to have to implement are not going to be that different in my opinion from the policies of his predecessor.
0: So your point is that the priority for France, for Greece, for everyone remains getting uh, their economic houses in order, solving Europe's indebtedness. What is at stake for the United States if Europe doesn't do that?
10: Um, Well, there's no doubt that if the European – the broader European strategy of having deepening euro area integration combined with fiscal austerity at the member state level, if that fails – and we therefore have a potential catastrophic unraveling of the euro area, including a number of of, uh, sovereign defaults in addition to the one we've already had in Greece. Uh, I mean, let me just say, I don't think this is going to happen. But were it to happen, the effects on the U.S. economy would be very dramatic because such a scenario would lead to an almost instant Major financial crisis in Europe. So, if the European strategy fails, uh, the dramatic, the impact on the U.S. economy will be dramatic. If
0: we are looking at some European leaders on the road to a face-off of some sort with Angela Merkel of Germany over austerity, do you think it's going to make a difference whose side uh, President Obama falls on?
10: Um, Not really. I think this is first and foremost a domestic European policy dispute, if you like. And I I think the Obama administration uh, will have relatively limited leverage. Over any of the players in Europe, and I think uh, the Obama administration will also, as they have done so far, been quite you know, hesitant to inject itself directly into uh, what is a an internal European dispute. Not least, of course, because the year 2012 progresses, we here in the United States come closer and closer to our own fiscal point of fiscal reckoning towards the end of the year. Jacob, uh, would you take
0: a bet on how uh, all of this uh, European economic stuff may affect the election campaign here, or is it just not black and white enough for sound bites?
10: Um, no, I, I will take uh, I will take a bet that the effects on uh, of the European crisis on the U.S. election and the U.S. economy, I should say, on the the effect on the U.S. economy and therefore on the election will be much smaller than we saw in both 2010 and 2011, where obviously the negative spillovers from the European uh, and and accelerating European crises had a significant negative impact on the U.S. economy. I don't think that there's going to be that many negative surprises from Europe this year. uh, And therefore, I think the impact on the U.S. election is going to be relatively limited.
0: Jacob Kierkegaard at the Peterson Institute in Washington. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Coming up, Indiana Republican Senator Richard Luger faces a bruising primary tomorrow. His challenger is hammering him for reaching out to
2: Democrats on foreign policy issues. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest— Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Tomorrow's primary day in Indiana. The contest that's drawing attention is the Republican Senate race. The incumbent, Richard Luger, has held his seat since 1977. He's twice chaired the powerful Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he's been known for reaching across the aisle on national security issues. In 2005, Luger worked with a junior senator from Illinois on a bill to prevent the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Now his Tea Party challenger in Indiana is using that against him. Here's the world's Jason Margolis.
11: When Barack Obama ran for president four years ago, his campaign aired this advertisement.
2: The single most important national security threat that we face is nuclear weapons falling into the hands of terrorists. What I did was reach out to Senator Dick Lugar, a Republican to help lock down loose nuclear weapons. We
4: have to Fast
11: forward to this campaign season. Here's an advertisement run by Lugar's Republican primary challenger.
4: No wonder they call him Obama's favorite Republican. It's time for new conservative leadership.
11: I'm Richard Murdoch,
7: and
6: I
11: approve this message. Richard Murdoch is the state treasurer of Indiana. His campaign did not respond to repeated interview requests for this story. Greg Fedig did. Fedig is active in the Indiana Tea Party and co founder of the group Hoosiers for a Conservative Senate. His group's goal get rid of Richard Luger. I personally voted for him for five times, but I will not a sixth time. Fedig ticks off a litany of reasons Luger has to go. Senator has served too long in office, has drifted too far to the left, and Senator Luger has worked with Obama. You're helping someone that doesn't espouse the same views as we do. And again, the senator would call that bipartisanship, and it's not, but it doesn't work that way anymore. Fedig criticizes Luger for being one of 13 Republican senators to break party ranks two years ago and vote for the new START treaty with Russia. Under that, the U.S. and Russia agreed to dramatically cut down their nuclear stockpiles. Fedig says this was a bill drafted with the Cold War in mind. We're 30 years past that point,
1: and it doesn't address uh, North Korea, it doesn't address China, it doesn't address
11: Iran. So if we cut down our arsenal, we become weakened. Fedig is confident that Luger's primary challenger will stay true to his word and not reach across the aisle. Richard Murdoch's website plainly reads, quote, Richard Murdoch does not support Barack Obama. I caught up with Senator Luger at a campaign event in South Bend. This was how he responded to the notion that he shouldn't work with President Obama on foreign policy issues.
4: I think it's a very unreasonable suggestion, and as a, as a matter of fact, not a very patriotic suggestion. Each one of us had, had better be able to talk to everybody in our own country, other countries, in behalf of our service personnel with boots on the ground, in behalf of peace with people, uh, if, if persons want to run for office, uh, indicating under no circumstances, will they ever talk to a hostile president or a hostile whoever? That's their business. But uh, that wouldn't be a, a very exemplary service to Indiana or to the country.
11: There was a time when many Republicans talked like Richard Luger. Toward the end of the 19th century, a class of Republican leaders viewed foreign affairs as being above politics. That didn't mean blind obedience, but foreign policy was seen as a calling that demanded service to the president, regardless of party affiliation. This attitude began to change around 1980, says Margie Hershey, a political scientist at Indiana University in Bloomington.
12: I think 1980 was a marker for a lot of changes in American politics in terms of uh, change in the nature of the Republican Party that later generated change in the nature of the Democratic Party, um, change in the media as we began to see a much bigger increase in cable and various other segmented media and new media.
11: Hershey says all of these factors have led us to today's extreme polarization. She worries when she hears Tea Party supporters say there can be no working with President Obama on foreign policy matters. She says the only way to make the system work is through compromise.
12: Or else you have to find some way of subduing the interests that don't agree with you. Frankly, I think that's an anti-democratic with a small d philosophy. There's nothing the matter with compromise.
11: But should Republicans compromise with the president on foreign policy matters if
3: they fundamentally disagree with him? I've always personally believed in the water's edge view of foreign policy. That is, we ought to present a united face to the world as much as
11: we can. Mitch Daniels is the popular Republican governor of Indiana. Daniels is endorsing Richard Lugar. The two men have deep personal ties. Daniel says when it comes to foreign policy, Republicans should be the loyal opposition.
3: My reading is that Senator Luger has differed strongly with the president on a number of, of grounds and said so, but he's done it in a, a civilized way and not all, always in a very public way. But um, no, I think folks should uh, reflect further on the importance of our speaking with one voice
11: internationally. Senator Lugar is now trying to remind his party base that he has disagreed with the president. On Lugar's campaign website, there's a national security section. There's no mention of working with Obama to reduce weapons of mass destruction. Lugar does, however, criticize the president's policies in Afghanistan. And Lugar faults the president for not getting congressional approval for actions in Libya. In South Bend, Luger emphasized that the two men see the world very differently and are no longer working together.
4: The last time I've had really any consultation with the president was in the Situation Room prior to our work in Libya as a country. I had very different views than those of the president or the administration. I appreciate being heard, but obviously uh, uh, my advice was not followed. And for a variety of reasons, I have not been subsequently summoned to the Situation Room or to any other room.
11: Many of Luger's critics suggest that he's running away from his record of bipartisanship to get reelected. Tomorrow, we'll know if that strategy worked. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, South Bend, Indiana. For
0: more of Jason's U.S. election coverage, including his stories on immigration issues in Nevada and Florida, go to theworld.org. Vladimir Putin is president of Russia again. Putin took the oath of office at a ceremony at the Kremlin today. At the same time, anti-Putin protesters were again out on the streets of Moscow. And now they have something new to protest. A secret palace, allegedly built for Putin's private use but paid for with public money. The BBC has investigated the allegation made by a former business associate of Putin. Reporter Tim Ewell says the palace is similar to those built for 18th century Russian czars with a few added amenities.
2: It's Scots, pads, an outdoor theater, a huge amount of infrastructure. All this
8: is
4: built on a thickly wooded hillside above the Black Sea, really the, the, the warmest and most fashionable part of the, of the Russian coast.
0: In fact, it's not far from Sochi where the Winter Olympics will be staged in 2014. Officially, it all belongs to a private company. But for a time, the complex was guarded by members of the elite Kremlin Protection Force. And the BBC has seen documents signed by a Kremlin Kremlin official that gave away state-owned land to a friend of Vladimir Putin's. The Kremlin denies any wrongdoing. Still, Russia's protest movement has been fueled by complaints about corruption among the country's political elite. And Ewell says the new allegation will only keep those fires burning.
8: Many anti-corruption campaigners will continue, I think, to investigate, to try and bring all this out into the open. Of course, not only to investigate money which may have gone missing, but deliberately was to politicize the issue and therefore raise a question about the country's current leadership.
0: The BBC's Tim Ewell on PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a friend tells us about Warren Weinstein, the aid worker kidnapped in Pakistan nine months ago.
6: He was always looking not to rub elbows with the rich and famous or the powerful in a country, but was always looking to find the oppressed and helping them to live within the system where they were.
2: The world is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com.
0: I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Amid an ongoing rebellion, Syria's government held a parliamentary election today. According to the government, the voting was smooth and turnout was high, but opposition groups cast doubt on those assertions, reporting more fighting between rebels and troops and calling today's vote a sham. The world's Laura Lynch is one of the few foreign journalists allowed into Syria. She sent us this report from Damascus.
9: This morning, the government gave foreign journalists an escorted bus tour of several select polling stations in downtown Damascus, driving past hundreds of campaign posters covering buildings and billboards. First stop, a school in the neighborhood of Kafar Suse. Inside the hallway hummed with people eager to vote, and eager to tell reporters why they think it's a good idea to cast a ballot while people are fighting and dying. Rada Bubaker called it a step forward.
5: I think it is very good
9: for our, my country, for my president. I must uh, vote. What do you think of the fact that this vote is taking place when there is still so much violence in the country? I think it will uh, bring uh, peace for, our, for my country. For all the boosterism, there were also flashes of anger toward those who have continued to protest and who likely didn't vote today.
5: It's
9: only the minority who demonstrate, Maze Al-Ali says. The majority are for peace and improvement. The minority are destroying everything for us. Are you from this neighbourhood? No. You're not? No. Is there anyone here from this neighbourhood? In fact, in this crowd, there was only one woman who said she actually lived in Suse. That's important because only days ago, a large crowd gathered here for funerals that turned into a big street protest. Down the street from the school, a group of boys play pickup soccer. The election means they've got the day off school. An older man leans against a wall watching them. He says he's not voting, and he doubts many other residents here will either.
2: I've voted before, but nothing changed, so this time I'm not going to bother.
9: If President Bashar al-Assad is looking to gain some sort of legitimacy from these elections, he's not winning over those who have long stood in opposition. The birdsong is just about the only pleasant thing in the dingy old offices that house the National Coordination Council for Democratic Change. Abdul Aziz al khair spent years in jail for opposing the regime. That isn't stopping him from continuing to condemn it and today's election.
4: This election
5: is really a fake of the will of the people. We asked people
7: not to go voting.
9: al khair says the vote will do nothing to change the violent conflict. In fact, he believes it will make it worse.
7: Syria is a fragile society which is not united. It is multinational, multi religious, multi sectal. And since the regime has been using all these divisions hmm, to divide the people and the, united, the unity of the society, due to the very famous rule
9: divide and conquer. Today, as the votes were cast, there were scattered reports of violence. They included reports not independently verified that security forces attacked villages where opposition supporters. We're refusing to vote. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch in Damascus.
0: It's going to be a while before the Guantanamo trial of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and four other men accused of plotting the September 11th attacks actually begins. That much is clear after this weekend's marathon arraignment. It lasted 13 hours as the defendants appeared to deliberately disrupt the proceedings. Defense lawyers have publicly challenged the fairness of the military court in Guantanamo, and prosecutors say they expect hundreds of motions to be filed by the defense team before a trial starts. Arun Roth of our partner program, Frontline, witnessed the arraignment this weekend in Guantanamo. He's now in Hanover, Maryland. Arun, you were one member in the pool of nine journalists to be inside the courtroom on Saturday afternoon. Describe the scene in the courtroom.
8: Well, it's interesting because the gallery, which is where uh, the journalists are seated, along with nine uh, eleven family members and NGO representatives who are, uh, who are selected to uh, be allowed in, we're in the courtroom, but we're actually separated from the rest of things by double-paned uh, reinforced glass. That's both for uh, security reasons and also we hear what's going on through the court loudspeaker actually on a 40-second delay. That's so that they can kill the audio if something classified comes up with time enough to, uh, to react so that nobody hears anything wrong. The weird thing about that is then what we're seeing in front of us, we don't hear what happens until about 40 seconds later. So some of the disruptions that happened in court uh, uh, later, later on we were, we were seeing initially, for instance, you know, one of the defendants took his shirt off to show supposedly his torture scars. Uh, it took us 40 seconds to hear the, uh, you know, what was actually going on as, as far as that goes.
0: How did Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the others actually look in the courtroom?
8: I would say they looked healthy for one thing. We've heard about Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and how uh, apparently a few years back he was looking a little bit thinner and maybe frail. He's chunky now. He, he looks sort of like, you know, the body size that he was in that in that classic photo when he was first uh, nabbed. And he also, a bunch of us were commenting on the fact that he seemed to have Mendi in his beard, you know, that sort of red henna, which uh, we were speculating, uh, weren't able to find out how he was able to get that in, uh, in Gitmo of all places. We never heard anything from uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, but there were uh, a couple of interesting uh, outbursts. At one point, one of his co-defendants, Ramzi bin al he interrupted his, his lawyer shouting out, saying something about Muammar Gaddafi. And then uh, he said, maybe you're not going to see me anymore. He said, they're going to kill us in the camp and say we've committed suicide. He's shouting this out in the middle of the proceedings before uh, they calmed him down and the judge told him. He wasn't ejected, but he was the judge to tell him that, you know, you couldn't. You can't do that in this sort of context.
0: No. Apparently, there was some controversy uh, in the courtroom about one of the defendants supposedly gesturing to a nine eleven uh, victim family member. Uh, clarify what happened there.
8: Yeah, that was at the very end of, of the day. And keep in mind, this was a brutally long day. It was. It was thirteen hours of court proceedings by the time it was done because one of the defendants exercised his right to hear the charges read in full. So thirteen hours. Uh, Everybody's exhausted and um, as as they're they're filing out the 9-11 family members were hanging around and uh, apparently I did not see this but what happened was Ramzi bin al-Shib one of the co-defendants looked over in their direction smiled and gave a thumbs up gesture which was obviously very deeply upsetting for the family members the defense lawyer, we asked about this later on, and he claimed that what was actually happening was that Ramzi was actually looking at his court-appointed translator and gesturing at him. But we talked to one of the family members afterwards, this guy Eddie Bracken, and uh, he, he, he wasn't buying it.
0: Arun, from what you saw on Saturday, did you get any sense of, of how the defense team plans on running its legal strategy at this point?
8: They're going to call into question the legitimacy of of the proceedings themselves, which seems like it probably won't go far. But the judge actually indicated that if they could raise, you know, significant enough legal or constitutional issues, he would entertain hearing them. Uh, They're going to try to get more access to their clients and loosen these restrictions they have on communicating with them. And obviously torture is going to be a big factor in this. It was it was from the beginning before things even started. Khalid Muhammad Mohammed refused to put his headphones in because his lawyer said of the torture he was uh, subjected to.
0: And so the defense feels that by bringing torture in- into the courtroom, they might be able to kind of cast some uh, well, illegitimacy on some of the charges.
8: Yeah, and they'll call on the a question of uh, the admissibility of the evidence as well. The government did have what were called clean teams, which went down and recorded interviews with the defendants that were not using any uh, of the harsh interrogation techniques. But what the defense is saying is that, look, These guys were tortured first. Everything now that happens is tainted.
0: Finally, Arun, you were advised by the Pentagon uh, just before going to Guantanamo to bring additional camping gear for your two nights there. What was that about?
8: I called a colonel there. This is my first trip to uh, to Gitmo, and I I was wondering about how I I should prepare. And and one thing I was told I needed to bring a sleeping bag, it's because the the tents there in the tent city where we stayed in the communal uh, uh, living, they keep the tents at about 60 degrees, even though it's 85 or so outside and and tropical, it's freezing inside the tents. Apparently, uh, the problem is mold and insects will invade if if not. So it's uh, you're sort of camping indoors.
0: Arun Roth of our partner program, Frontline, will have links to more of your observations from the courtroom in Guantanamo at theworld.org. Thank you very much.
8: Thanks, Marco. It was a pleasure.
0: The White House issued a statement relating to al-Qaeda today. A spokesman said the Obama administration does not negotiate with the terror group and will not do so regarding the case of American hostage Warren Weinstein. The 70-year-old American aid worker was kidnapped in Pakistan nine months ago. He surfaced in a two-minute video posted by al-Qaeda yesterday. Weinstein's message was chilling.
4: I'd like to talk to President Obama and ask and beg him that he please... Accept and respond to the demands of the Mujahideen. My life is in your hands, Mr. President. If you accept the demands, I live. If you don't accept the demands, then I die.
0: At the time of his abduction, Weinstein was Pakistan country director for J.E. Austin Associates, a development contractor that works with the U.S. government. Bill Piat is a friend and former colleague of Weinstein's. They met when Weinstein was a country director for the Peace Corps in Togo, West Africa. Bill Piat succeeded him in that post. And full disclosure here, Bill Piat was a Togo country director and my boss when I was a Peace Corps volunteer there. Piat says his relationship with Warren Weinstein began in Togo but deepened in the years that followed.
6: He actually served as a mentor to me. We worked very closely together all across Sub-Saharan Africa promoting small enterprise development uh, as part of a big AID program that he was leading. I was frankly surprised to find that he's still working, though when you really know Warren, to think that he had an opportunity to face a challenge like that posed by what's happening in Pakistan, I can see how that would be something he could not resist
0: Of course, you've known about his abduction since it happened last August. What do you know about the details?
6: Well, all I know is that uh, he had been to Islamabad and had said his goodbyes to everybody that, um, you know, probably the ministries that he was working with and was within 48 hours of returning home to his family in the United States when some insurgents broke into his house and got his driver to open his bedroom door. And uh, that's then how he was abducted.
0: Bill, since he was a, a mentor of sorts to you, tell us what sort of person he is. I mean, specifically what else you might be able to tell us about Warren Weinstein that might help us understand how he's coping with this abduction and being in detention.
6: When I heard the newspaper reports that he had become fluent in Urdu, I did not find that surprising at all. And when I heard that occasionally he would dress in the local dress. I did not find that surprising at all. Warren is a connoisseur of culture. I was constantly in awe of his linguistic abilities and his ability to get close to and work with local leaders at the grassroots level in the country. But What really impressed me about Warren more than anything else was he almost always seemed to be in trouble with Washington, D.C. and It was because he was so focused on doing what was right for the people in the country that when the policies or the dictates that came down from Washington were inconsistent with that, he would often just ignore them and do what he thought was right. Whenever he rubbed anybody the wrong way, it was always the bureaucrats in Washington that he rubbed the wrong way. Mm. And he did it for the benefit of the people in the country. You know, he ticked off Peace Corps when he was in Togo because he was pushing all this stuff locally. And, He drove us crazy as staff members, but it was because he wanted to do the right thing and he didn't want to let anybody be complacent. He wanted to push everybody as hard as possible. Then he went to USAID and he did that huge private sector development project in sub-Saharan Africa and drove all the bureaucrats at AID crazy with it. But boy, they had a huge impact.
0: Bill, thanks very much for telling us about Warren.
6: Thank you, Marco.
0: Bill Piat is a friend and former colleague of Warren Weinstein, an American contractor abducted in Pakistan. Today's GeoQuiz is about a dragon slayer. The legend of St. George goes back two millennia. A Roman soldier famous for slaying a dragon has been immortalized in icons through the ages. Even the Boy Scouts consider him a patron saint. He was a Christian martyr who professed his faith despite being tortured by the Roman emperor. Nowadays, there are festivals around the world honoring St. George. The festivals take place this time of year in England, Greece, and Bulgaria, to name a few places. Also in Moscow, Barcelona, and in a Palestinian town we'd like you to name. This town outside of Bethlehem shares its name with the old Christian monastery there. The town is named after St. George. So if you know a little Arabic, then you probably have the answer on the tip of your tongue. Can you name it? There's more of our midis reporting on the web. We have a new blog post today from the world's Ann Lopez in Saudi Arabia. She writes about what it's like to be out and about in Riyadh without the full body cloak traditionally worn by Saudi women. That's at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. For our GeoQuiz today, we were looking for the name of a Palestinian village. It's where Palestinian Christians and Muslims celebrated the feast of St. George this weekend. The world's Matthew Bell visited the monastery, and Matthew set the scene for us. In fact, named the scene for us. Uh, where is this place where George the Dragon Slayer still inspires a traditional holiday?
1: In fact, the village is named after George, and the Arabic name is Al-Khadr. And the village is just a few miles outside of Bethlehem in the West Bank. Every year, they have the Feast of St. George. It usually happens in early May, according to the Eastern Orthodox calendar. So what kind of place is Al-Hadr, and what kind of party is this? What kind of festival is this? It's a village of about 10,000 people, Marco. And interestingly, it's a Palestinian Muslim village, except for the abbot of the Al-Hadr Monastery, which is right in the middle of town. He runs this monastery that was built in the early 1900s. It was built on... On ruins that go back they say to the 16th century and the festival centers there the Palestinian Christians and Muslims come to pray and to venerate St. George. All right let's get a taste of the festival. Here's your story, Matthew. It's a beautiful tile floor, beautiful colored paintings of saints and lots of crosses, images of, of Christ and chandeliers hanging. There's an image on the ceiling of, of St. George on a horse slaying a dragon. I'm here with the abbot of the church, Father Ananias. Father, tell me a little bit about the significance of St. George for Palestinians here in this area.
2: This church is exactly the place of the home of Mother of St. George. Many, many
1: miracles so today, these are not just Christians, these are Muslims that are coming to visit as well.
2: The, the Muslims come from St. George, if you do something good for me, I will come to you. I will visit you, I will light candles, I will bring to you oil. So they make an offering? Yes, like Christians.
1: Aha, they're seeking the intervention from St. George himself.
2: Yes, like Christians, the same. They have a miracle. St. George will have to protect us. <laughs>
1: So let's go see what people are doing. This is the reason why people really come on this weekend. During the festival of St. George, Al-Khader, there's a boy scout standing with a set of old-fashioned shackles. People are lining up. They kiss the chains, the shackle. He then puts it over the person's head three times. So they kiss it three times. He puts it over the head and then wraps the chain around and they're saying some prayers and then walking up to different paintings in the church and spending some time in quiet contemplation and then moving on. I speak with people as they come and go from the sanctuary and whether they're Christian or Muslim, just about everyone has a different story about how they prayed to St George for help and then received it. A Christian grandmother says she's been coming to the church on this day every year since one of her infant sons, now grown, recovered from a severe illness. Several families come and take pictures with their young boys dressed up as the dragon slayer.
5: We make a promise that if we got a baby in St. George's birthday, we name it on his name. His name is Yorgos, and this is the second birthday for him.
1: And why is St. George so, so important today? Because
5: we trust in him, yeah, and if we pray for him, he respond to us. Always the people. If they if happens something wrong for them, they say Yahadr. It's they calling the Hadr. The Hadr is very important because everybody he need him. He always he comes. It's,
1: it's like saying Oh my God, but you're saying Oh my Saint George. Yeah,
5: Oh
12: my Saint George. Yeah.
1: Oh my
0: Yahadar. We've got a slideshow from the Saint George Monastery featuring the chandeliers and the chains at theworld.org. Finally today, reporter Marissa Neff introduces us to Morel Wagner. She's a Finnish singer of Ethiopian descent whose music explores the dark side of life.
13: To say that Morel Wagner's folk songs are haunting is an understatement. Her lyrics dive headlong into the spooky and morbid aspects of life, or death as it were.
12: They hung alone. Where the road leads, I will go. And it's a hard and a crooked life
13: when you're a dead man's unwedded pride. The 24-year-old singer credits the legendary blues music of Skip James and Robert Johnson for providing her with inspiration. When she was in her early teens, her friends were tuning into pop bands like the Backstreet Boys. But Wagner had songs like James's hard time Killin' floor blues on heavy rotation.
12: Us so
13: very long. When I met Wagner, she didn't seem to be brooding or somber. Still, the singer says she's always been fascinated by the darker side of things.
5: Well, yes, I've always find the melancholy interesting. I think that it's a part of life that people don't really talk about much, which is as important as being happy or it's just part of life. I'm not a sad person. I'm just sometimes I feel sad and that's when I write songs most of the
12: time. My baby has a swollen face, long stiff limbs the minds are black pits of a place where I've been
13: The single from Wagner's self-titled debut is called No Death. It has a sparseness that makes it shocking when the words delve into themes of necrophilia and love beyond the grave. But there's a seductive quality to the song that makes you want to keep listening, even with the uncomfortable nature of the lyrics.
12: No death can tear us apart Ah,
5: ah I don't like to explain the song that much because I think that when you start to explain your songs to the listener, it sort of robs them something. And I don't like to hear that much of the explanations of the artists, I like to make my own own interpretations, and that's what I like to hear from people. That what they think that the song is about. There is some some imagery like rotten tongues and that sort of stuff that may put people off. But when you sort of look past the surface, you can see that it's it's a very sort of sensitive and fragile the song.
12: All day I stay by her side But death has a claim and a right to my bride I shut the doors, pull the curtains and hide I heard something moving somewhere outside No death can tear us apart
13: For the world, I'm
12: Marissa Nash. No death can tear us apart no death
0: can tear us apart ah. You can see the video for Morrel Wagner's No Death at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Unfortunately, we have to part for today, but we'll be back
12: tomorrow.
2: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, the Freeman Foundation, and the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org PRI Public Radio International